I mean, it's always an honor to be able to, to share with any group of people, particularly those of us who are fulfilling, I believe, the great call of ministry, um, which is becoming increasingly difficult for us in these days where we are able to fellowship and gather together with one another. Um, I do not um, count it as a slight thing that we are able to still join together. As my dad mentioned, um, you know, there are many places, but most notably right now, even in Afghanistan, where Christians, faithful Christians, are having to strive and do everything they can, even at the risk of their lives, to gather together. So it is very important that as long as we have this freedom, that we continue to gather together. So I am excited to be here. I'm also excited to preach a morning service. <laughs> My gosh. I have not preached a morning service since I preached in Aniana in March. So I feel a little locked and loaded this morning. I'm not going to lie. I got a little bit more energy than I do at 1.30, so I'm excited about preaching the word. Now, in our church, we've actually been going through for the past year, believe it or not, we've been working through the book of Acts. I'm an expository preacher. I walk straight through books of the Bible. So we've been in Acts for the past year. Y'all have not been in Acts for the past year. And so as I was thinking and meditating about what I was going to preach about, I said, well, maybe I'll take a little bit of a break from Acts this week because we have a whole lot of context and things that we're building up. And so this week, as I was, you know, seeking and preparing and even praying about what I would say, I felt like I was directed towards um, the book of Titus, the book of Titus. And as I was looking in Titus, I noticed in chapter three, that there is a lot of rich and even relevant content that we can spend a great deal of time on and share with today. And so my prayer is for all of us, as we share together today, that we're going to leave here better believers than when we came in. That is my hope. And so you'll take note in um, Titus, this is Paul, who is writing his letter to Titus, who is essentially one of his spiritual sons in the gospel. And he's sharing with him some instructions. He's admonishing him about things that should be happening in that church. And so as he's closing out that letter, he leaves him with some pertinent instructions, not just to Titus, but he was also instructing Titus on how to care for the people. Now, there are times that we see these same instructions here with First Peter, and we think to ourselves as we read these instructions, there is no way that the things that Paul is writing about or that Peter wrote about, that they would fly in today's time. There is no way we would think that these instructions could be followed in today's time. But I think one of the things that we fail to realize is that even during this time, the time that Paul is writing, the time that Peter wrote, they're in far more contentious conditions where they are than we have perhaps ever been in America. And so what is actually showing us that it wouldn't have been more difficult for us to follow these instructions. We have the liberty and the freedom to practice whoever we worship and however we worship. What we realize is that it actually would have been more difficult, more challenging, even to their lives to follow the instructions that they were being given in the word of God. They were under Roman rule, and, and as far as Roman rule is concerned, they hated Christianity, and they hated Christians. Yet, Paul still left them with some real practical points to remember in their dealings with the world. 
And so I think they can be summarized in three points a day, and we're going to work through those. So for your writing, I'm going to go ahead and give you the three points in advance. So the first point is going to be be humble. Be humble. The second one, obviously connected to the first one, remember your past. Remember your past. And then the third one is going to be avoid contention. Avoid contention. So we're going to go in the word of God. Go with me, if you will, to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. And it reads, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness, of, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that there is rich truth and ultimately all truth is devised from the word of God. There is no other truth aside from this, God. So we thank you that you're going to teach us how to be better believers, how to devote ourselves to the good work that you have called us to. Not so that we can be justified, God, but because we have been justified, you're going to produce in us good works. And we thank you for that now in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So our text opens up here again with Paul admonishing Titus to remind those who were under his care, those who were in his flock, those who were in his congregation to be submissive, to be obedient, to speak evil of no one, not fighting and showing courtesy, but rather showing courtesy to all in order to even do one of these things. All right. In order for us to even attempt to do one of these things, we need humility. In order for us to do even one of them, we need humility. More than that, if we need humility to do one of those things, how much more humility do we need to do all of those things? We need humility in order to have any shot at performing any of these works. So the sermon today is titled, do good works. Do good works. And so this is our first key to doing good works. As I mentioned, be humble. Be humble. Why is humility so important here? Because let's be honest. 
we have a difficult time even submitting to the leadership of people we think deserve to be in power. But when Paul is writing this, he's writing to people, he's writing to Christians, believers, who knew that the people that they were serving under were wicked. They knew that they were wicked. They knew that they hated Christians. So now we have even a little bit more context as to how could you command people to be obedient, to be submissive under wicked rule. What he's actually doing is helping us realize that most of us, because of our bend towards sin, we have a difficult time submitting to anybody, even if we think that person achieved that office in a worthy manner, even if we think that person is qualified or good or benevolent to hold that office, we still have a difficult time submitting to them. How much more difficult do we have when we know the person got that by evil means or that they're using it to oppress us in a certain way? Yet that's not the instruction here. The instruction here is not in the face of evil revolt, be a revolutionary, be woke. He says, actually, no, you submit. He says, in the midst of wicked leadership, you submit. Paul is writing this to people who were at that time suffering under the oppressive leadership of the Roman rule. And what does he do? He doesn't say in the midst of every little offense that you stand out, that you protest. No. He says that in the midst of unruly and unchristian leadership, we obey. How does this help us? Let's think about this. In a world that would do anything and go to any means to invalidate our faith, the last thing that we should do as believers is give them the fuel for their fire. The last thing we can do is legitimize any claim that they make against us as believers. So many of us are trying so hard to be revolutionaries, to be woke, to be activists. But all that really does is radicalize us. For those who don't know, which you know now, I work at Restoration Academy. And one of the more constant things that I deal with among the students is that they always say, well, we'll obey the rules that make sense. But the ones we don't think make sense, we're not going to obey. The rules that we think are stupid, those are the ones that we're actually not going to obey. And I find myself constantly having this conversation reminding them, listen, if you don't obey the rule, whether or not you think it is stupid, there's no way it'll change. Because I guarantee you, we will enforce it even more because you won't obey it. But if you want to affect change in the school, submit to the rule that you think is stupid so that they'll see your obedience, honor it, and then listen to what you have to say. I think this is the same thing Paul is admonishing us as believers to do. We don't have the luxury of just deciding, well, this rule makes sense as a believer or this rule, but rather we submit ourselves to everything that comes to us from every authority. I know that's difficult for us to accept, isn't it? Listen, I tell them all the time that when you just blindly disrespect and disobey rules, then you become the person that nobody listens to on the, score, on the corner. 
You're screaming, you're noisy, but you're ineffective. You can't just be so against the establishment that you don't know that sometimes we have to work within the social order in order to see change. More importantly, perhaps, is the fact that your obedience prevents any legitimate claim against the world, by the world, against you. If I obey, if I'm doing what's right, then whatever the world says about me is a lie. Listen, we ultimately get this truth and this humility straight from the life of Jesus, don't we? We do. Think about it. Jesus was a perfectly law-abiding citizen. This is Jesus, all right? Just in case you don't know, the originator of the universe, all right? Not only does he submit himself to death, but he also submits himself to wicked rule. At every turn, as I preached last week, he turned the whole world upside down. How can a man who never broke a law turn the world upside down? How do I know that he was a perfect, perfectly law-abiding citizen? Because if he weren't, then the Romans would have been justified in some way for killing him. They would have been. But if you remember in Luke 23 and 4, Pilate tells the chief priest, I have found no guilt in this man. No guilt. How in the world can a man who was perfectly abiding every law turn the world upside down? Because in his submitting to the authority here, he was submitting to a greater authority there. That's the key here. Jesus is innocent of any charges that could have been brought against him. Now, I want you to think about this. We have the creator of the universe who doesn't think that it's beneath him to submit himself to the rule of human leadership. Yet we think that we can revile and revolt and stand out and be revolutionaries. Who do we think that we are? If God himself can humble himself as far down as he did here, then who do we think we are to have the right to combat any officers around us? Jesus was perfectly innocent and sinless, yet he still submitted. You and me, I'm going to include myself in this, on our best day, we think sinful thoughts. We say sinful words. We do sinful deeds. Who do we think we are to have thought that we have earned the right to decide what is right and what is wrong in our own lives when on my best day I can't be right? See, it's not that, okay, all the rules that I think make sense I'm going to obey. That's not how you do good work. You say, even the ones that I can't rationalize, as long as it does not infringe on my ability to practice my Christianity, that's the caveat, I submit to it. But then this humility should drive us, as Paul says, to even more good works. He says, not only are you to submit and be obedient, he naturally goes right in this. He says, but we are to speak evil of no one. We are to speak evil of no one. 
The phrase used here in the Greek is blasphemeo. And obviously that's where we get our term blasphemy from. And this means that we should not speak in a way that maligns anyone. Uh Oh, what does that mean? I'm going to show you something here. To malign means to speak evil of or share information about someone spitefully with the intent to shape how somebody perceives that person. Uh oh. All right. You think that's you think that's a problem. I'm going to give you a deeper problem. This malice. This is not slander. Slander is when you share false information about someone. Maligning someone may mean that you may be saying and sharing something that is true. But what is your intent behind sharing it? When you are speaking evil of someone, you always think just like I do. Well, but what I said was true. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. If you share the information intentionally to shape the way somebody believes somebody else behaved, then you are maligning them. He says, do not do this. Whether you are sharing truthful information or not, if your intent is to disparage their character, you are not living up to the standard of this text. Paul says here that if you are a Christian, you are to avoid this type of behavior. Why? Would this type of behavior be acceptable in the world? Absolutely. It's our truth. We can share truth. It's everybody's truth. Everybody has their own truth. But we actually live in a different, a higher moral standard than the world. Whether legitimate or not, we never have a reason to malign anyone. Never. Our character is not adapted to the standard of the world, but rather we have submitted to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says that we should avoid unnecessary fights and arguments that lead to strife and discord. So it is seen that it means that the more the most Christian thing you can do is be humble in the midst of even evil and not strike up arguments just for the sake of striking up arguments. How does one accomplish accomplish this all within humility? He says by being gentle. And by showing courtesy for all people. This is not just showing courtesy to the Christians. This is not just showing courtesy to the people who share your point of view. But this is a courtesy that applies to everyone. This may seem like a challenge, but what state does the Bible say that we were in when Christ died for us? The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why on the cross, Jesus is interceding for us still. Father, forgive them. Listen, Jesus didn't wait for us to get clean, to die for us. He did it anyway. And that brings us to our second point. Remember your past. Remember your past. Why is that important here? Why is remembering your past important here? 
Because the amount of grace and mercy that we are willing to share to one another is directly connected to how much grace and mercy we think we've received from Jesus Christ. Look at the principle I just mentioned here. We were sinners while Jesus was on the cross. And yet he cared enough for us to die for us and be the only means of our salvation. In other words, as I said earlier, who do we think we are? Who do we think we are to not show grace and not show love and not show mercy and kindness to anyone? Mm -hmm. To behave like that is actually a denial of the love and grace and mercy and kindness that we have received from the Lord. Paul says that we ourselves, we ourselves were once foolish as well. We were once disobedient. We were once led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, full of malice, hate and envy. We were guilty of every single sin mentionable. One of the most damning things that we can do as believers is think that the cross of Christ was meant for everybody else but me. No. And I would argue I needed more of the cross than anybody. I would argue I'm the worst sinner I know. You may not have needed as much as I do, but I know the thoughts that go through my mind. I know how dark and black my heart was until Jesus Christ came and gave me a righteousness that I couldn't earn for myself. Therefore, I remember my past because my past is ever close to me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells those believers there that all of these different types of people will be prevented from entering the kingdom of God. And then after he finishes that list, he says, but and such were some of you. Listen, I hate to break some news to some of the self-righteous people in here. But if you claim to be saved, claim you got to be saved from some. All right. I know you may have forgotten in your eternal memory loss. okay? but you had to be saved from something because if you came here saved, then you never were saved. All right. Lest we forget the past that God has sovereignly saved us from as a means to leverage our self-righteousness on other people. That's not it. We know our past and we remember our past so that when we see other people who are stuck in their sins, just like we were, we remember the cross of Christ and how he pulled me up out of the muck and miry clay. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. In order to do good work as a believer, that means The only thing that I see different than me and the drug addict, me and the greedy, me and the sexually immoral is the cross. But it also means that I'm one cross of Christ away from being what I was. And that means that they are one cross of Christ away from being what they could be. 
Be humble is our first point, but how do we do that? We do that by, by knowing that I am who I am, not by my own strength, but by the works and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All that I have and all that I am is not because of me, but it is because of Jesus. I am who I am because of his grace. I had a conversation this week with a woman. She was a professing believer. And she said that thing that a lot of us often say, you know, I hear this a lot and, you know, I like to refute it. But she said, you know, I love people from a distance. I love you, but I love you from a distance. And once you mess up with me, that's it. And I said, you know, I hear that quite a bit, actually. I say, but when you really think about it, that's not really biblical, is it? She says, what do you mean? I said, well, actually, Jesus says, if your enemy makes you go a mile with them, go another. It's Jesus who actually says, if your enemy slaps you on the cheek, that you turn the other cheek. Oh, y'all thought that meant to walk away. That's as an offering. And so what we often say was common for us in this world of self-preservation is often not rooted in truth. And then I told her this, but at the end of all of it, I'm glad that Jesus didn't love me from a distance. I said, because you understand that if Jesus had loved me from a distance, if Jesus was only protecting his own interests, his own his own humanity, if he was only protecting his safety and his peace, all that crap that we say now, then I would never be saved because he would never go to a cross. I'm glad that I don't have a God who thinks the way that I would think. Who wasn't just thinking about what was best for him. But when he went on that cross, he saw me. When he went on that cross, he saw you. And he knew exactly what the cost of my salvation was. And he paid it anyway. Listen, I know the song says we were worth saving. No, we were not. We were not worth saving. That's what makes it a miracle. Because if I were worth saving, I wouldn't need saving. But in the moment that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, he justified the price tag that was assigned to my life. Thereby, he made me worth saving. But I wasn't. Jesus knew that it would bring us peace for him to be forsaken. Do you understand that? It would be that he was forsaken by the father, yet his forsakenness would bring us peace. In order to do good work as a Christian, we have to have the mind of Jesus Christ in us. Willing to humble ourselves. No matter what the cost is to see somebody come to Christ and never think that anything is beneath us. Nothing is beneath you. When you're trying to live a life devoted to Jesus. I want you to think about it like this. Because all we hear now, especially during these COVID times, is self-preservation. You got to protect yourself. And I said last week, you know, people in Afghanistan don't have the luxury of self-preservation right now. Yeah, they're willing to die for their faith. I think sometimes we say certain things because it's convenient for us as Americanized Christians 
to say, oh, but I got to, you know, self-preservation, positive vibes only. You know what y'all say, all that stuff. <laughs> but I want you to think about it like this. Why would I do all I can to preserve here what will only ever be temporary when what awaits me is eternal? Paul says that in the beautiful mystery of God's goodness, what should keep us humble is that by his grace, not our righteousness, he has wonderfully and miraculously and eternally saved us and secured us. Because we know all the riches of this truth concerning our relationship with God, we should pursue good works. Not works as a means of justifying us, but good works as a response to us having been justified by Jesus. Finally, that brings us to our third and final point, which says, avoid contention. Avoid contention. It is quite interesting at times, I believe, that so many Christians are so apt to find themselves in arguments over things that at the core may be biblical, but maybe not the actual reason for why we're having an argument. <laughs> Everything I've pointed out today is undoubtedly rooted in the first point in today's sermon, which is be humble. If you knew who Paul was, then you would know that Paul was known as a man of great intellect, great intellect. He was brought before Felix. He was brought before Herod. He was brought before Caesar. And every one of them admired him because they knew how smart of a man that Paul was. And so if anyone could hold his own in some of these deep theological and philosophical conversations, it would have been Paul. Paul could have had any of the conversations that he wanted to. He could have gotten any argument that he wanted to. He would have been the best at arguing with anybody. Yet, he is admonishing us to not engage in such conversations regardless of one's ability to argue. And I don't know if y'all know this about me, but if there was a class offered in arguments in college, I would have passed it with flying colors. In fact, I probably would have taught it on a doctoral level because I love arguing. I love arguing about anything. Stuff I don't even care about. I'd be like, I'm finna argue about it. <laughs> My wife would say, she knows it's true. But Paul is actually saying here is that the only reason we engage in arguments like that, which leads to division, is because of our pride. It doesn't matter if you're talking about something biblical or trying to defend a biblical point. Very often what we're trying to do is look good to other people. He says those conversations only edify the individual having them. The job we have as Christians is to avoid things that intentionally separate and divide. What does this have to do with doing good work? Well, a part of doing good work is by actually striving to be good and honorable believers. It is about leading with truth and love and the gospel wherever we go. Why? Because our goal is not to point people to us. Our ultimate goal is to point people to him. How can I drive more people to Christ? How? By being like him. 
by being conformed in his image. Listen, it is about leading in the way that Christ would lead, not leading in the way that I think is best. Not directing people back to my carnality, but directing people back to him. Seeing his care and sensitivity and love and patterning my life after him. Listen, I tell people all the time, look, you know, I like a lot of people. I admire some people. But the person I'm trying to be most like is Jesus. That's it. And I'm not saying that it's like some noble thing on my part. The reason I have to do that is because I know how naturally sinful I am. I know how devoted I am to my own flesh and my own carnality. And if I have a shot at representing and being an ambassador of Jesus Christ in this earth, I got to look like him. I got to talk like him. I got to be like him. Seeing how he humbled himself eventually to death. Death. Listen, people, we are no greater than our master. We are no greater. If we are going to do good works in this life and in this earth, we're going to have to be like him. I want you to think about this. As you start your week and as you navigate through your week, I want you to remember this sermon. I want you to remember the points in this sermon. What it means to be a good Christian. What it means to do good work. What it means to look like Jesus. Ultimately, it's going to mean what Jesus said, waking up every day. First, denying yourself. Denying yourself, looking at that cross, understanding that you have to be nailed to it. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but it's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Knowing every single day, I'm picking that cross back up, and I'm bearing it. Not for my good and my glory, but so that people will see my fragile, broken, good works and glorify my Father, which is in heaven. Remember how you can do good work and remember how your life may be the example that others need to see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we thank you that you have given us not just the ultimate example in Jesus, but that you've also given us the power through the Holy Spirit to obey the scriptures, to look like you, to be like you. God, we are who we are, not because of us, not because of our goodness, not because of our own strength, but because you died for us. God, in all of our doings, let us not forget that we are not products of our own righteousness and that in a dying world, while we could sit and complain, The only way that dying men will be resurrected is that they hear the saving work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. God, give us what we need to actually do the work that you have called us to do. To lay aside what makes us comfortable, to lay aside what makes us us, and to put on and pick up what makes us look more like you. God, give us what we need to deny ourselves, deny our flesh, deny our desires, deny our pleasures so that we can look more like you. God, help us realize that whatever the easy thing for us to do in our life is probably not the thing that you would want us to do. 
God, help us do the things that we can only do with your help. God, when we want to be bent towards our sin, when we want to malign, when we want to disobey, when we want to revolt, when we want to revile, we want to operate in our flesh, God, remind us that that's who we used to be. That ain't who we are anymore. We have been washed. We have been redeemed. In the precious blood of Jesus. God, if there's anybody here who does not understand what the gospel is, God, let them know that we were all here born with the default position that we are sinners. We were born headed for an eternal damnation because of the sin of Adam that was passed down to us and our own personal sins. And that, God, without you, we had no hope of righteousness. But the guilt, the shame, the separation that was due to us, you poured it on the back of Jesus and he hung on the cross and died in our place and he satisfied the debt that we had to pay with our lives. And he took away our sin guilt. And that because of that, we can reside with him for all of eternity if we repent, turn away from our sins and believe the gospel. So my prayer, God, is there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, that you have opened their eyes, you've opened their ears, you've opened their heart to hear the gospel for the first time. And that they inquire about what salvation is, that we can answer their question directly to you. And we pray that as we get ready to, to close and go into our week, that you will keep these things top of mind. Keep these on our heart. Keep us close to you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.